All right, if I haven't met you before, my name is Grant, one of the teaching pastors. Glad that you're here. We have been on a wild ride through the book of Genesis. This is not for the faint of heart. After the 9.30 service, one of my sisters in Christ walked up and said, that was horrible (laughs) and beautiful at the same time. So... (laughs) Yeah, here we go. Anyways, if you have not been with us over the last couple of weeks, let me get you caught up so that we're all playing on the same field. Genesis chapter 1, God creates and it's all good. Genesis chapter 2, God creates a man and a woman. He hosts a naked wedding. And at the naked wedding, God strikes a template for relationship and godly marriage. And the template is not changed. Genesis chapter 3, God opens a door to man's free will. And ugly things like choice and decision and consequences and boundaries start showing up. It comes out of a conversation with a snake who lies and deceives. And Adam and Eve use the same free will that you exercise today in deciding to move towards God and come to church. They use that same free will to move away from God and go their own direction. And yet, instead of God pushing them away and giving them what they deserve, instead, God decides to cover them. He covers them. And it's so beautiful because we begin to see this pattern emerge of God's relentless plan that is always covering and always giving grace and always drawing people with mercy. God chooses over and over and over again to pull good out of evil circumstances. Genesis chapter 4, we find sibling rivalry and hotly debated sacrifices and murder. And once again, even though Cain murders his own brother, God creates a way of creating a covering over top of Cain. God's relentless plan of love continues to cover and reach and pursue. Genesis chapter 5, there's a big genealogy with some confusing names. Kenan, Enosh, Methuselah, Enoch, and the list goes on and on all the way up to a guy by the name of Noah that we ran into last week. Genesis chapter 6, we have angel sex, giant offspring, a new definition of a hero, and God's instructions to a messed up guy to build an ark. Genesis chapter 7, God hits a reset button, and there's no coloring pages for the the, the global genocide that actually happens in Genesis chapter 7. Then in Genesis chapter 8, the water goes down after the flood. Noah and his family emerge, and God begins to create something brand new. And he's still creating something new. And he created a new opportunity inside of you today to be here. If you think you're here because you chose to be, I got news for you. You're here because God said you got to be. And I'm glad that we all get to do this together. At the end of Genesis chapter 8, there's this There's this covenant. God steps up and says, I want to give a covenant to Noah. And that covenant extends to every single person in the room. The Bible says this, then God said to Noah and his sons, I'll remind you of their names. It's going to be important in a minute. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay. It says, God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you, with your descendants after you. That would be us. With every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. And here comes the promise. I establish my covenant with you never again. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So we see this relentless cycle of God's plan and love emerging over and over and over again. I mean, we're only nine chapters in and it showed up at least three different times that remind you of it. So it always starts off with God creating. He created an opportunity for you to be here today. God creates and then God always connects in a very deep way with the people that he creates. But then the issue comes in, we sin. We make that decision. We sin and because we sin, relationship breaks But instead of giving us what we deserve and pushing us away, God actually draws us back to himself. God restores the relationship 
And in the process of restoring, he redeems. He writes a brand new story for every single person, every single time. And then God begins to create again. And it goes around and around and around. Well, this weekend we're going to zero in on that little we sin section. Because it's going to get bad. The hero of Noah and the ark is going to convince us one more time that you should never attach the word hero to a human being because it's only a matter of time until they disappoint you. We're going to learn again today that the only person deserving of the title hero is Jesus because he's the only one that never gets it wrong. Noah's going to show us just how human he is and and before we judge him, we should, we should always remember how respectful we should be when we get a front row seat on somebody else's failure because nobody in the room, including the guy with the microphone, can claim to have been perfect. I call this section drowning in bad choices. It's going to get a little confusing. We're going to turn some things upside down. Things are going to get a little awkward and uncomfortable here. And one more time, I'm going to say you should put your children in child care. Otherwise, you will be asked very awkward questions on the way home. Genesis chapter 9, verse 20, the water's gone down, the ark's come to rest on the top of Mount Ararat. Noah and his seven survivors have walked out, and the Bible says this, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard, and when he drank some of its wine, now be really careful what you do with the timeline, because some of us get this picture in the brain of Noah walks out of the uh, ark, and, and a whole bunch of stuff just happens. I talked to a vintner who grows grapes professionally, and they said from the time a grapevine goes into the ground, it takes three to five years before you're going to get any usable fruit off of those vines. So we're actually talking a season of time, three to five years, Noah's off the ark, everything's going well, and then this happens. He makes a decision. The Bible says when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside of his tent. Yes. Why did I decide to preach Genesis? That's what I'm wondering right now. I got a naked drunk patriarch. That is not good at all. So let me break it down for you. Here's what Noah does. Noah decides to celebrate this beautiful example of God's deliverance with his family by getting completely and totally wasted. It's the same type of mentality that goes into people saying, I'm going to celebrate God's creation of plant life by taking some plants, drying them, rolling them, and smoking them. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> what? Why are you celebrating God's grace and forgiveness by getting wasted? That's what the Bible says. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside of his tent. Wow. Verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, so Noah's son, saw his father naked. <laughs> that is not a visual you want, is it? And to make it worse, Noah's over 120 years old when this happens. I'm just saying, okay? People are just like, that's in my Bible. It's in your Bible. Check it out for yourself. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it across their shoulders, then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their fa father naked. Okay, when that's the best decision that's been made so far in the story, you know this is a broken situation right here, okay? Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. Now that's just weird. Let me tell you why. So, Ham was the son who saw him and didn't do anything about it. Canaan is actually Noah's grandson. So he's flipping out on his grandson for something his kid did. 
I'll come back to that. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he, be, will he be to his brothers. He also said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. Okay. Deep breath. Anybody else confused so far as to what has gone on, right? And just like, me too. I've been studying for a couple of weeks and this story still confuses me. Okay, so. Nobody debates whether or not Noah got drunk. That's in the story. You, can't, you, you cannot debate that. But commentators for years, decades, centuries, have been writing articles on just exactly what saw your father naked actually means. Because the Hebrew language, it, it, it's, just, it's very, very interesting. It's got some, some, some holes and some ambiguity in the language. Nobody really knows exactly what that means. Here's what I can tell you that they actually agree on, even though they're pretty much split down the middle as to what that phrase means. There's no debate. Something sexually inappropriate happened. Some people go so far as to say that what happened was incest. No matter what it was, it broke God's heart and it embarrassed Noah. Commentators are also very confused about what happens when Noah wakes up. I mean, his son Ham did the quote-unquote looking, but it's a grandson who takes the heat. And nobody knows. Is there a cultural implication? Is there a more general implication? Nobody really knows about what happened in that moment and so no one can make, you know, a hard, cold judgment. What we know is this. Whatever they saw, Noah's embarrassed. He's hung over. And supposedly he's a preacher of righteousness. It's kind of a heartbreaking story when you think about it. Some people ask the question, so what's the deal with Noah? Like, I mean, one second he's cursing his grandson, and then the next second he's actually praising God and praying to his father that he would cover certain sons. I mean, how does somebody go from... from from, from cursing the blessing in an instant, and we want to judge Noah until we remember that we're the same people who drive into the Christ the King parking lot, and if somebody in front of us doesn't go quite quickly enough to make that left on Bakerview, we start thinking in our head, what kind of an idiot are you? You need to drop dead, get out of my way. I'm trying to get to church, and we're thinking bad thoughts and murdering people in our brains, and then we walk into church, and when he walks into the room... Everything changes. Thank you, Jesus, for loving. And you're like, really? You know, we could spend hours talking about what this could be in Genesis chapter 9, but that would be fruitless. Because the truth is, nobody knows. Not definitively. So what do we do with this? I mean, I read the passage. This is what we're supposed to preach this week on. What in the world are you supposed to do with that? Well, let's make it as practical as we can. I'm going to say this again. I've said it before. I'm not a biblical scholar. I'm not a theologian. I'm a kid who grew up in Canada who has the privilege of teaching at Christ the King Community Church. I'm just a pastor, so I'm going to give it my best shot. This is the closest we're ever going to get to really, really deep theology and philosophy at Christ the King. So stick with me. It's going to be difficult for you, but I want you to engage the philosophical side of your mind. Here's my first deep thought. Bad stuff happens when you're wasted. That's all I got. <laughs> Bad stuff happens when you're wasted. And all God's people said? Amen. There you go, right? Noah makes a decision, a poor decision, and he pays for it. 
not going to get all caught up in the debate about whether or not it's okay for Christians to consume alcohol, okay? The Bible does not prohibit the consumption of alcohol, but it does, be it ever so clearly and explicitly, draw a line on drunkenness, which includes you getting buzzed. I'm going to get all up in your business today. <laughs> Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine. That's about as clear as you can get which leads to debauchery. You know what debauchery means? It means excess. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but getting drunk leads to too many words, too many innuendos, too many statements that you can't take back, too many actions to prove that you're not in control of your brain or your mouth or your body or your soul or your mind. It leads to excess. I've noticed something. Maybe you've noticed this too. I have never seen anybody drink and get smarter. <laughs> Ever. Ever. I have seen people drink too much, which means they talk too much, they act out too much, they lose their filter, they pay a huge price because they give over the control of their mouth and their body and their brain to a substance and their reputation goes out the window. My friends, you don't hear anything else, please hear this. It takes a lifetime to build a reputation, about five minutes to ruin one. That's my little soapbox, okay? Do not get drunk. What's the end of the verse? Which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Why would we want to be filled with the Spirit? Why? Because when you're under God's influence, your words don't hinder. They actually help. Your actions don't embarrass you. They actually edify the people that are around you. Your reputation doesn't just disappear underneath of you. Instead, it magnifies, becomes transparent, and actually gives people an opportunity to see Jesus. In that moment, when you're under God's influence, when you're intoxicated with the presence of Jesus, in that moment, your life actually matters. Noah gets drunk, and then he proceeds to, to curse his grandson. What can we learn from that? Okay, remember? Theologically and philosophically deep, number two. Bad things happen when you're wasted. Number two, your words matter. I got a question. Shouldn't a grandpa be blessing his grandson? I mean, isn't that the role of a grandpa, right? Grandpas are supposed to impart wisdom. They're supposed to bless their grandkids and slip us money when our parents aren't looking, right? That's what they're supposed to do, right? Instead, you got a grandpa embarrassed because he gets wasted. He walks out and he takes a bead on the first person right in front of him. He doesn't even pick on the one who did the thing wrong. He goes after his grandkid. You're in the way. Boom. Listen to what the Bible has to say about the power of your tongue. Proverbs 18, 21. The tongue has the power of life and death and those who love it will eat its fruit. So according to the Bible, your words can actually kill or bring life. I remember years ago, middle school, two of my so-called friends. Grant, the word would, world would be a better place if you were just dead. I can't unhear that, and they can't unsay it. Why does that stuff still stick to a 50-year-old grown man? You know why? Because words wound. You know what I wanted to hear in those moments? I wanted to hear what every middle school kid wants to hear. Actually, your life matters. It's amazing, right? One little collection of words can either bring death or life. You're an idiot. That's death. You can do this. That's life. Nobody cares about you. That's death. I believe in you. That's life. 
And it's not just the work you, words you speak to others, my friends. I see a lot of people spewing garbage at the person in the mirror. Because you've got an old tape running inside of your head that says you're worthless and, and nobody really, really cares. And so you say things, and, I, and, and I'm going to ask you a question. When you speak ill of the person that looks back to you in the mirror, let me ask you this question. What right do you have to talk down to one of God's sons or one of God's daughters? Nobody else should do it and neither should you. So you need to remind yourself of your identity. I don't care how broken it may be. I don't care how difficult your life be. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you need to remind yourself every single day, I am a son of the most high God. I am blood-bought and saved eternally because of everything that Jesus did to me. And nobody gets to talk down about God's creation because I may not belong to anybody else, but I belong to him. What else does the Bible say about your words? Ooh, this is a tough one. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, apparently, I've got some blankety blank, 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 blank garbage down in my heart because that's what keeps popping out of my mouth. If your heart's full of anger, guess what comes out of your mouth? Anger. If your heart's full of prejudice, guess what comes rolling out of your mouth? prejudice. If your heart is full of pride or jealousy or sarcasm, that's what comes tumbling out of your mouth. So if you ever want to reverse engineer it, this is how it works. If you really want to know what's deep down in your soul, listen to your self-talk. Anybody else having an ouch moment right now? If you need some more passion to clean up what comes pouring out of your mouth, Listen to Matthew 12, 36, Jesus speaking. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. That means this, in every single conversation you have an opportunity. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the culture that broke God's heart because they perpetually and continuously chose the ungodly over the godly. Well, you have an opportunity. In every single conversation you're gonna have for the next seven days, you've got a choice. Bless or curse. Bless or curse. And if you call yourself a Jesus follower, Romans chapter 12 actually tells you your decision before you even enter into the debate. The Bible says in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. So that means if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have an option. And some of you are thinking, I don't curse people, Grant, I just think bad things. Let me give you a biblical definition for curse. It's anything that enters your mind that wishes ill will on another person. That's a curse. Hard to get around it with Noah. I mean, the Bible says, cursed be Canaan. That's what he says. What can we learn from Noah? So, so far, bad things happen when you're wasted. Your words matter. Number three, the decisions you make today have deep implications for the generations that follow. Everything you decide today will actually affect your kids, your grandkids, and your great-grandkids, and your friends, and your coworkers, and everybody else. If you don't believe that to be true, spend about three minutes with the child of an alcoholic parent, and you will change your mind. Every decision they made had an implication on you. Don't think that your decision today actually has no implications. Every single thing I'm going to do affects Braden and McKenna and Alex and Olivia and their kids and their grandkids, even though those even don't exist yet. 
And it happens both positively and negatively. Let me break it down for you. On the positive, Abraham Fashbuk made a decision multiple generations ago to take his family out of what was then Prussia, which is now modern-day Poland, come to Canada to start a new life. Every single day, four generations of fish books are thankful that Abraham made that choice. Because our whole world went a different direction based on that one decision to relocate his family. Every single day, we have an opportunity to impact. My grandfather modeled something for me. He imprinted something. He made a decision that even when his grandson Grant was hanging around, every single night before he went to bed, he would slip out of bed onto his knees, clasp his hands in the most reverent, humble posture, and pray to Jesus in German. And when he did that, he imprinted me because I saw my grandfather leave me a legacy through a simple decision to pray in humility, and I learned the power and the value of prayer. They left a godly legacy, and you have an opportunity to do exactly the same thing. Every decision is going to push them, either positive or negative, either towards Jesus or away. Choose wisely. On the negative side, many of you have encountered the pain of decisions that your parents make. Some of you know exactly what it feels like when your parents chose a job and money over you. Some of you know exactly what it feels like to watch them choose something to numb the pain of their life and you got a front row seat and had to clean up the mess when they were done. Some of you cannot forget the words that they said that left a mark on your soul. You know firsthand every single decision, every single word matters and has implications. Now we hold all of that stuff. I've been watching it happen all weekend. We hold all of that stuff and our brain goes into some very, very ugly places. So I just want to say this, no matter what your parents did, you still have to forgive them and you still have to live your own life. People ask me all the time, what do I do when I'm handed the broken humanity of the decisions that my parents made? And I say the same thing. You gather up all of their broken decisions, you bring it to the foot of the cross, you lay it in front of Jesus, and then you remember this. You are an anointed, set-apart son or daughter of the Most High God. And no matter what happened in the generations before you, it all gets to stop and change with you because you don't need to walk the same path. You don't need to make the same decisions. So as of right now, you stand under the authority of Jesus' name. You break the generational curses in His power, not your own. You live differently and you bless your children and love your children. You walk a completely different path and give God all of the glory because He's doing it in and through you. Some of you look at it and you just go, so he curses his grandkid. No big deal. It's just words, right? You sure? See, Noah's family begins to grow and the family tree begins to spread out across the world. And, and God makes a promise to a people several generations later that they're actually going to inherit this beautiful promised land. They're going to get to go and take up residence in a land that God has completely promised to them. And when they show up to claim the land, they're a little surprised because there's people there. 
And these people are not small, they're huge, they're huge obstacles, and they want to actually inherit the land as well. They're already there, and so everybody's kind of freaking out, and so the Israelites show up on the border of this promised land, and, and they send some spies in amongst this land to try and figure out, you know, I thought we were supposed to have this land as a promise, and it's so, so interesting. As you read Numbers chapter 13, what happens? The spies come back, and here's the story. They came back to Moses and Aaron, and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land into which you sent us and it flows with milk and honey. Stop there for a second. Not milk of cows and honey of bees. Milk of goats and honey of dates. If you want an opportunity to experience that, you should come to Israel with me in 2018. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are very powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. You know who those guys are? Remember the Nephilim and their offspring from Genesis 6? There they are. Verse 29, the Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and here it comes. You don't think Noah's decision to curse Canaan had an implication? What comes next, you need to circle it and underline it to remind yourself everything you say has implications, because guess who's waiting in the promised land as an obstacle and a barrier? The Bible says, and the Canaanites lived near the sea and along the Jordan. You see, Noah's grandkids had kids of their own. How do you think the clan of Canaan felt about the offspring of Noah's kids showing up on their doorstep? What's this mean right now? If you've got a choice to bless, bless. Because if you don't bless, all of those curses will eventually come back. I mean, here's the heartbreaking truth. Noah made a single decision to get wasted and curse his grandson, and it came back to bite an entire nation. Your decisions matter. So do mine. All right. One last really deep thought. Sin didn't drown in the flood. but Boy, don't you wish that it would have. I mean, God hits the reset button and all of the evil and... All of that washes away, but with one bad decision, guess what shows up again? Sin. It's mankind at its worst, and it's not just Noah's problem. It's all of our problems. So let me give you a quick primer on sin. It is not politically correct, but it's absolutely essential for us to understand. This is where it's going to get really, really hard. I need you to stick with me. This is the truth about sin that nobody wants to admit, okay? And it's what your Bible teaches. Number one, I'm born with it. Bible says, Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. That doesn't come with an age restriction. I was born a narcissistic little savage. I've grown up a narcissistic little savage. I'm still a narcissistic little savage. I've got a sin nature, and I try to qualify it by saying, no, 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 no. I'm a really, really, really good person. The problem with that is I know me, and you know you. I'm born with it. Secondly, ugh, I choose it. I choose it. And I'm in good company. The Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 7, 11 verses of pain and hurt. What's well, one of my favorite chapters in Scripture because I so relate to it. Let me give you my paraphrase of Romans chapter 7 from the Apostle Paul. He goes, The bad stuff that I don't want to do, I keep doing it. The good stuff that I want to do, I can't even bring myself to do that. I'm a complete and total mess. 
Ah, I choose sin every day, and it's a war inside of my soul. Go check it out. <laughs> I'm born with it. I choose it. Here's the hardest one. I'm blinded by it. I can't even see it. That's why it's so hard to admit. Bible's so clear. Ephesians chapter 4. I tell you this. I insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding. They can't see and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And it gets even worse. I mean, I'm born with it. I choose it. I'm blind to it. And I'm enslaved to it. John 8, 34. You got a problem with that? Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Which means left to my own, I'm shackled, I'm imprisoned, I'm captive. And just when the sin of Noah and myself can't get any more depressing, Jesus steps in and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't you dare let the devil press your shame button because he does not have the last word on sin. The Son of God has the last word on sin. What I say goes because of what I did on the cross. We're going to have a different conversation. We're going to take this debate in a completely different direction because this is the truth about my personal battle with sin and your personal battle with sin. You need to know this. Write it down. Underline. Underscore. Stick it into your brain over and over again. When the devil comes, and accuses you of being a helpless sinner, you need to remind him exactly of who you are because of nothing that you have done but because of this simple truth. Jesus broke the power of sin. He broke it. Listen to the bad news in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? That's the bad news. Don't stop reading in verse 24. Make sure you read the good news in verse 25. But thanks be to God who delivers me through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. Somebody say amen. That's the power right there. Which means Jesus broke the power of sin. He busted it. He broke it when he delivered me, when he chose me, when he adopted me, when he loved me, when he forgave me, when he died for me, when he rose for me. And that means this, if the power of sin is broken, then I'm no longer a slave. I'm not a slave to sin anymore. Romans chapter 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin, which means this, I've got the power to choose can't do it on my own, fully reliant on the Holy Spirit. But every single day I get to choose, starting right now, I get to choose between the godly and the ungodly. Choose godly. I get to choose between blessing and cursing. Choose blessing. I get to choose between embarrassing my children or leaving a godly legacy for my children. Choose a godly legacy. Noah would beg you, make the right choice. Make the right choice. I have the freedom to break generational curses in my family. I have the freedom to live free because he who the Son sets free is free indeed. One more to add. One more. One more. I don't have to do this all by myself. In fact, I have an instruction. I have an instruction manual. I've got a love letter from God. We've been reading through it as we get through the first nine chapters of Genesis. This stuff's been crazy heavy. You have done an amazing job of walking through it, but I want to remind you of something. The Bible teaches me how to make godly decisions. 
it instructs my heart in how to choose between godly and ungodly, blessing and cursing. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture, including the end of Genesis chapter 9, where the patriarch and the hero of Noah and the ark ends up drunk and wasted. All Scripture is God-breathed. It matters and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Somebody walked up to me after the last service and said, Grant, you've completely ruined Noah for me. I thought it was a guy with a beard, a boat, and a bird. That's what I thought it was. I'm a guy with no beard, no boat, and my wife doesn't like birds, so there you go, right? You know, the story of, mirror, uh, of Noah is really, it's just a mirror. Last week, remember what we talked about? Ark didn't have a rudder. There's no sails. Noah just had to trust him. It's a giant bobber. He had to trust that God was going to lead him in the right direction. Now, Noah's got to trust that God's grace can cover him in his worst moment. Can I tell you something? God's grace can cover you in your worst moment, and I want to remind you, your best moment is not nearly as good as you think it is. This is a beautiful story how a man gave in to sin and it cost him but the covering of God showed up and ultimately it's a story again of how God conquers all sin so if you're going to walk away with something today I hope it's this learn from Noah's sin follow Jesus all weekend I've been praying with kids adult kids who are still crying over things that their parents said to them when they were little. You know why? Because words wound and hurt. It needs to stop with us. We need to be the generation who learns Noah's lessons and says, no more curses. We will bless our kids. Bless them with godly boundaries. Bless them with loving hearts. We're going to bless our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids because God has given us both the power and the authority to be able to do that. If Noah was here, I am sure he would preach something like this. Guys, your words matter. Bad things happen when you're wasted. Be under the control of Jesus. Make a godly decision right now. It will have implications for multiple generations. And never ever forget what happened on the ark. We learned it last week. Not everybody needs to be a Noah, but everybody needs to be an ark. Let's keep the doors open, not only to people that don't know Jesus, but keep our, our doors open to the Holy Spirit's influence in correcting and corralling this thing right here. I shudder to think of what would happen in Whatcom County if the agents and spies of Christ the King made two simple decisions this week. I will bless and not curse, and I will live as if every decision matters. promise if you do, your kids and your grandkids will thank you. Would you do me a favor? Would you stand with me as we close today?
Father God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here today. God, I pray that they would speak words of life to the man or the woman in the mirror. I pray that we would have a forgiving heart towards any decisions that our parents or grandparents may have made that still affect us to this day. And God, may the decisions we make bless our children, our grandchildren, and all the generations that will follow us. God, I thank you that we are here today, that we are fully dependent, and that Noah, that Noah would want us to learn from his mistakes. So God, teach us, change us, and transform us with this difficult word. And God, when we get it right, may it bring honor, glory, and praise to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.